0: Galatians chapter 3. We are in our sixth sermon in this series entitled, How to Be a Good Christian and Other Religious Nonsense. And we're going to be addressing the very important question this afternoon of what good is the law? What good is the law? It's very important. We'll be discussing that as we cover verses 15 through 25, <clears throat> excuse me, of chapter 3. So first we'll pray, we'll talk a little bit, and then we'll get in the text. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to come into your presence this afternoon. We know it's only by the grace of you and what you've done for us. It's only by the cross. Thank you that we could experience your presence because you've dealt with the sin issue. You've removed from us the the stain of sin, the burden of sin, the separation that it causes between us thank you for that lord we ask now that as people the glory of what you've done for us through cross on the christ would not christ on the cross would not be lost on us we ask lord that our hearts would be on fire with the truth of your love and your gospel and the forgiveness that we have in jesus i ask that you would please Enable me by your Holy Spirit to preach now in a way that would further your purposes and bring tremendous glory to your name because of who you are and what you've done, your great promises that you've accomplished and are accomplishing on our behalf, and that we, Lord, would live lives that glorify you. we ask you together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you've been with us for the duration of the sermon series, you no doubt have begun to ask the question... What about the rules? I mean, come on. I understand that we're saved by grace through faith alone and what Christ has done for us, but does that really mean that we don't have to have any real concern about the rules or pursuit of righteousness? I mean, come on. I hear what we're saying, but what about the rules? Surely they play some role. And if you're asking that question... That's really the natural question to ask at this juncture for the person who's been carefully following the arguments of Paul in the book of Galatians. What we've learned so far would bring us to the point of asking that question. In fact, Paul predicts that that question is coming and he both asks and answers preemptively in our text the question, why was the law given? Getting at this, if God will accept us because of what he himself has done for us in giving Christ to die in our place on the cross precisely because we failed to keep the rules, then why give us the rules anyway if he's willing to do that? And that's that's a valid and thoughtful question. Now, in thinking about that then, the church has come up with some solutions that are, erroneous. There's a couple of them. One is called antinomianism, okay? Some people subscribe to something called antinomianism. Big word, don't worry about it, you got it. Antinomianism, which is basically the view that Christians are released by grace from having to observe the moral law. Okay? We're, we're released by grace from having to observe the moral law. Now, as we talk about this, we need to realize something about the law. When the book of Galatians is referring to the laws, it does it over and over. It's generally speaking of the content of the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. Right? Um, when we speak about the law or the rules or whatever phraseology we're putting on it in this series, we're, we're talking about the whole of Scripture because there's a lot of New Testament imperatives, commands. There's, there's tons of them that are in there that we realize. But generally, the book of Galatians here is referring to the first five books and it's called the Law of Moses. And the Law of Moses was was made up of two parts, the ceremonial law and the moral law. Here's what you must get about the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was things like the sacrifices that were to be made, the different types of sacrifices, the different washings that had to be performed, the dietary laws, certain things that couldn't be touched, so on and so forth, okay? All of those ceremonial laws pointed toward Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of them. So, all of them and humanity's obligation to them are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry at all about the ceremonial law or trying to adhere to those dietary or, or cleansing or sacrifice things because we know that Jesus fulfilled them. For example, the Bible tells us that Christ died once and for all. The godly for the ungodly that we might be brought to God. So, so Jesus fulfilled all of the sacrifices. So we don't have to worry about that. But then you have the moral law, right? And the moral laws is, is the biggies on moral issues like thou shalt not kill and steal and commit adultery and, and all those sorts of things. The moral law seems to be true for all people at all times and all places throughout all of history. But the view of antinomianism is that the cross of Christ and, and all the things that Christ fulfills not only frees us from the ceremonial law, but from the moral law, okay? I, here's what they would say. I am made right with God by faith. That's true. I am saved by grace through faith, not what I do. Therefore, I never have to be concerned about obeying the moral law or trying to do righteousness, After all, they would say, the pursuit of righteousness is something that Pharisees do because they imagine that they need to be justified by the works of the law. But we have been freed from that, they would say. We've been freed from the law, freed from the requirements of the law. We don't have to worry about obedience to the moral law. The law and the commandments of God have no binding influence on my conscience, they would say. No, that's that's an error in the church, antinomianism. In juxtaposition to that, there's a second and opposite and yet equal error, which is legalism. Legalism is is, is the exact opposite error of antinomianism. If antinomianism says we, we don't have to worry about the rules at all, legalism says you have to worry about the rules very much. Even in light of the grace of God and what God has done, you still need to perform well if you are ultimately gonna be accepted before God. What will ultimately matter in our justification is whether or not you have done the right things. That was the position of the opponents of Paul. That idea is why Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia in the first place to address that error. And so Paul's been saying over and over again in our study, No one will ever be justified by the works of the law, right? By keeping the rules, by performing a certain way. No one will ever be made right with God through their performance. We are only made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Paul's been saying that repeatedly. And what he did in last week's text and what he's doing in this week's text is he's grounding that truth, he's defending that truth in the history of how God dealt with Abraham. Last week, we brought to mind um, Genesis chapter 15, where God made certain promises to Abraham, and it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham was declared righteous by his belief in, his faith in what the Lord said he would do. And the Lord had made a bunch of promises to Abraham and that Abraham would be blessed and his offspring would be blessed and ultimately that the whole world would be blessed by what God would do for Abraham. And so ultimately the world. And and the thrust of that is that those promised blessings, according to God's communication, were solely and wholly dependent upon what God would do, not what Abraham would do or even fail to do. And furthermore, ultimately, these promised blessings, though they're multifaceted and span centuries in their fulfillment, ultimately, they are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything that God promised to Abraham is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross. What is paramount for us to realize as we approach this text is this very simple thing which you must be able to take to the bank. God does not break his promises. Okay? Paul's grounding his whole argument in that fact, that God keeps his covenantal promises. He is not a man that he should lie. God keeps his word. And so then, in the narrative of Scripture, okay, and Scripture is the story of God's interaction with humanity. In in the narrative of Scripture, we see that there came the point where God made promises to Abraham that were solely dependent upon God's delivery of them. Later on, 430 years later, he did a thing with Moses where he gave Moses the law. And what we need to understand is because God made certain promises here, that when he gave Moses the law and told humanity to obey the law, what God was not doing is he was not intending to withdraw his intent of justifying men and women by grace through faith. Abraham was declared righteous by faith. Then God gave the law, and the narrative of Scripture said obey the law. He was not withdrawing the promise to Abraham, of which Christianity is essentially rooted, and whom which Jesus is the fulfillment. Now we read that, starting in verse 15. Paul says to the churches in Galatia, dear brothers and sisters, notice he's being much kinder this week. Remember last week he was calling them fools and idiots and You are so dumb. Now he's being much kinder. Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child, and that, of course, means Christ. This is what I'm trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. So God promised Abraham certain things. It's fulfilled ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a covenant. It is a foundation for our justification by faith alone. And what verse 15 is simply saying is this. Look, even as sinful people who break all sorts of promises all the time, we understand that if we make an irrevocable agreement, covenant is the idea. We we don't break that right? At least we shouldn't. It's an irrevocable agreement. We shouldn't amend or break or neglect covenants. So if you as sinful people know that a covenant needs to be honored, how much more can we expect God to honor his promises to Abraham? And then he's essentially saying in verse 16 that when God gave the law to Moses 430 years later, he was not intending to break or change the promise he made to Abraham promise he made to Abraham, and then came the law. What becomes very clear to anybody paying attention is this, that in history, and simultaneously, usually, God is dealing with humanity according to two different principles, promise and law. Or we might say, for our New Testament purposes, grace and law. God seems to be dealing with humanity according to two different principles principles okay the promise to Abraham was essentially God saying I will and I will and I will okay the the the, the essence of promise is God saying I will do this the essence of law as the covenant of Moses was given to Moses is God saying you had better you must you had better not Okay, so the the idea of promise is God saying, I will do this and I will do this and I will do this. The idea of law is God saying, you better not do this, you better do that and don't forget to do this. Okay, the promise revealed what God would do. The law revealed what man must do. The promise only had to be believed, but the law had to be obeyed. The promise was according to grace. The law is the action of works. So, the careful student would say in the narrative of Scripture, why not just stop at I will? Why not just stop with Abraham? If we're gonna be justified according to our belief in you anyway, well, why not stop there? Why bring in the component of the law? Because aren't the two by their very nature in conflict to one another? And there we pick it up in the first part of verse 19. Paul asks the question Why then was the law given? And then he answers the question It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. Okay, stop right there. It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. The law was given for this reason that we might know we are sinners. And that we might know we need a savior. The law was given that we would absolutely know we're sinners who are absolutely in need of a savior. The function of the law is not to bestow salvation. The function of the law is to convince people of their desperate need to be saved. Paul elaborates on this function of the law further in Romans. In Romans chapter 3, he says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In Romans 4, he says, where there is no law, there's no transgression. We know what's right and wrong because the law has been given. In Romans 7, he said, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So <clears throat> the main work of the law as intended by God is to expose sin as being, this is the important part, to expose sin as being a violation of God's will and God's way. The job of the law is to expose sin, but not just expose sin, to expose sin as being a violation of God's will, God's way, God's character, and God's purposes, so that all of humanity becomes accountable to God so that we understand that all sin is sin against God. So the purpose is to define sin and therefore show us where transgression is. God sets the boundaries. To transgress is to cross the line. God sets the boundaries that humanity might know when we're transgressing so that All of humanity would be accountable for evil. Without the law, there's no accountability for evil. God sets the boundaries, shows us what transgression is so that now everybody is accountable for evil and that's a good thing. Another way to think about this is how John Calvin thought about it. One of the things he said about the law is that the law is a mirror, okay? The law is a mirror in a couple different ways. First way, The law is a mirror in the way that it reflects God. The law reflects the perfect righteousness of God and so reveals something foundational about God, okay? The law is like a mirror that reflects the perfect righteousness of God and so reveals something about who God is. Gives us a great understanding of the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the standards of God, the ways and the will of God. The law is a mirror that reflects something about the character and the righteousness of God. Secondly, then, if we turn the mirror back on humanity, okay, the law is a mirror that exposes what people are like and it illumines our utter wickedness. And it's that second part of the job of the law as mirror to expose what people are like and illumine our utter wickedness that is designed to drive us to Jesus. The law's a mirror in which we see God's reflected, perfect righteousness, and we learn about God. And then as we come to it, it exposes our utter wickedness, and the goal there is to drive us to Jesus. Augustine, in writing about this, said, the law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. The law teaches us that we need a savior. We need to be saved. And what we have to understand about the law is this. Though the law defines sin the law can not cure sin the law defines sin but the law cannot cure sin the law is like a doctor who upon examining you reveals that you have a deadly disease and upon diagnosing the disease, is only able to say, though I see the disease in you, I can do nothing to cure it. And though that diagnosis for the diseased person is incredibly valuable, important, as is the doctor, the knowledge that there is some sort of deadly thing in them only increases creates and increases exponentially the desire for the cure. There was no desire for a cure until they knew they had the deadly disease. What the law does is diagnose us as having the deadly issue of sin. By having one's diagnosis, it leaves us and says, I can do nothing to cure you. thereby creating in humanity an intense longing for the Savior. So that the second part of verse 19 says, but the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised, who is Jesus. The law looked forward to the coming of Christ. It pointed us in a, in a violent way. Toward Jesus, all of humanity pointed toward the need for the Savior. Now that we know we've transgressed, we are desperately hoping for the one whom the prophet Isaiah said would be pierced for our transgressions. So that the New Testament says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. <laughs> I love words like that. What does that mean? Propitiation. Here's what propitiation means. Here's what it means that Jesus is our propitiation. It means that Jesus was a sacrifice that bore the wrath of God to its end so that the wrath of God toward us became kindness toward us. A propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies Jesus was a sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God. He took the wrath of God to its end so that what was previously God's wrath toward us has been turned into God's kindness toward us because the wrath was dealt with through Christ. So then in the rest of verse 19 and into verse 20, Paul continues to argue for the primacy of promise, grace, over law. We'll read that. Pick it up in verse 19. It says, God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was a mediator between God and and the people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Those are some complicated, difficult verses, but here's the idea. Paul is saying this Look, think of it this way the law came to us secondhand. God gave it to angels, gave it to Moses. Moses was a mediator. It's almost third hand if you think about it. From God to the angels, to Moses, to the people. But when God gave the promise, he gave it directly to Abraham. So Paul then assigned some sort of value to that. That in the narrative of God, God spoke directly to Abraham about the promise of justification by faith. Ah, but when it came to the law, mediator. So then what he goes on to say then is this, that you only need a mediator when there's two parties involved in fulfilling an agreement. But God's agreement with Abraham was one-sided. It depended upon God. I will, I will, I will. It was fully dependent upon what God said he would do. So no mediator was necessary. William Barclay commenting on this says to Paul it was the weakness of the law that it depended on two persons the lawgiver and the law keeper and human beings had wrecked it grace is entirely from god we cannot undo it and surely it is better to depend on the grace of the unchanging god than on the hopeless efforts of helpless human beings So the primary point, then, that Paul's getting at here is that the law, the Mosaic Covenant, must be subordinate to the promise, the Abrahamic Covenant ultimately fulfilled in Christ. In other words, what the law does is serves grace. Okay, we're we're getting down some nitty-gritty here. What the law does is it serves the purposes of promise, the purposes of grace. In its God-given purpose, the law is not in conflict with grace. Rather, it works to make grace appear as it is. Absolutely necessary for being right with God and having life. So he continues in verse 21. He says, is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. What he says there is the law does not work against the promise, against Grace, it works with the promise, with grace to make it desirable and indispensable. That is why God gave the law. It is the diagnosis of death that makes the cure desirable and indispensable. I want it and I must have it or I will perish. So we know that we need the promise and we know the value of the promise only because we have the law. It reveals to us that we are, as verse 22 says, prisoners of sin. The law makes grace desirable and indispensable because it is a mirror that reflects both the perfect righteousness of God and the utter wickedness of man. Then he picks it up in verse 23. He says, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected or guarded us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Okay, so he brings up this idea, a very famous idea from Paul here, of the guardian who has us in protective custody. Different translations um, render this word for guardian differently. Uh, New American Standard says tutor. I think the New King James says schoolmaster. Okay, so there's a sense of a guardian, this entity, it's the law. it's, it's, It's like a tutor, a guardian, or a schoolmaster. It's got us under protective custody. Now, there's a couple of different ways that interpreters approach this, but they end up in the same place, okay? There's a couple different ways to think about what this passage is saying. The first way, and this would be what John Stott says, he would say this, that what Paul is saying here is, is we're, we're imprisoned by the law. We are shackled and bound and locked up by the law. We're confined and we cannot escape until Christ comes. And that's absolutely true. That's, that's the right place to land. He just goes a little bit, uh, he just goes about a little bit differently, perhaps in the next example, just because the Greek is a little bit ambiguous as to what that word means. William Barclay comes in, has a different approach, lands in the same place. He and others would say something like this, that this, this analogy here that Paul is invoking is based on the Greek household. In Greek households during the time, there was one servant who was usually the the oldest servant, the most trusted servant, the most respected servant in the house. He'd been with the family the longest time. His responsibility was the moral and character development and maturation of the children in the house. Okay, he was in charge. He oversaw their development morally, character-wise. He oversaw their maturing process. One of the things that the servant did them was deliver them to school every day. He took the kids to school. We we can relate to that. He wasn't the teacher per se. So schoolmaster could be a little misleading. He himself was not the teacher per se, but he made sure that in order to develop correctly and go in the right way, he delivered the kids every single day to where they needed to be. That, Paul is saying, is the job of the law, to lead us to, to get us to, to keep us in confinement until Christ comes. The law is to lead us to Christ every single day for salvation and for life. It doesn't accomplish anything in and of itself in the way of saving us or changing us other than bringing us to that desperate place of needing the Savior. No. here's the salient point. This is what we have to get. You you, you have to get this because a lot of people don't. You have to get this. Concerning the law. The law. I'm gonna speak broadly now. The, The law as Galatians is referring to it, the Old Testament law, but also all those New Testament imperatives, right? What we're supposed to do. The law, the rules is given by God. Never show us to be good. They only and always prove us to be bad. You, you don't understand. The law <laughs> never, by God's design, never shows anybody to be good. It only and always shows everybody to be bad. This is why this is important. Because a lot of you, in your ability to do well in keeping the rules, think yourself to be good. And so you create within the Christian community good Christian, bad Christian. The law would say that is an impossible designation. Because the very thing that you are basing that on, your ability to do well keeping the rules, the rules only and always show everybody to be bad. God's perspective is different. God says in Psalm 14 and he repeats it through Paul in Romans, there is none who are good or do good. Not a single one. Verse 22 said, the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. I like the way the New American Standard said it. It said, Scripture has shut up all men under sin. The law says to you, lawkeeper, shut up. You esteem yourself good because you do well at keeping the rules, and so you esteem others not as good. Shut up. Everyone is shut up under the law. The law never shows us to be good. It only and always shows us to be bad. So that you must hear this. Andrew Jukes says, Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by the law. But God gave the law to prove us sinners. Think upon that. Satan would have us prove ourselves holy. By performing well according to the rules. God gave the rules that you would know you are unholy and wicked. By whose economy are you functioning? Martin Luther on this said, the principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it shows them their sin. That by the knowledge thereof, they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken. And by this means, may be driven to seek grace. And so to come to the blessed seed, who is Christ. What the law does, by the design of God, is it brings us to the end of ourselves, in any way that we might esteem ourselves good, so that we finally place our meaning, purpose, value, and sense of well-being for salvation and living and eternity in the gospel, in the I will, I will, I will of God. This, I don't feel like being harsh, but this will be harsh. Some of you, some of your hearts, though you're a Christian, are nearly dead to the gospel. It, the truth of the gospel doesn't cause your heart to sing. You're not overjoyed by the truth of what Christ has done for you. You're not overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude. You, you're not on fire for Jesus. You're not captivated and charmed and entranced with who he is and what he's done for you. You underappreciate the gospel because you have underrealized your wickedness. You've never come face to face with the law, you've never stared into the mirror of the law and seen your depravity. You have fallen prey to the scheme of Satan to try to show yourself holy. Therefore, your heart is not enamored with the truth of the gospel. And anytime that your mind would begin to ruminate on and meditate upon, your own wickedness is revealed in the law, you will Google a million pleasant images You could hear any pleasant sounds that you want. Anything to tantalize, placate, numb your senses so you don't have to deal with your wickedness. That's the plight of our culture. Is that we have under-realized our wickedness and that it brings us condemnation from God. Always and always shows us to be bad. Has earned us the wrath of God. The full blown wrath of God. Damnation for eternity. You underappreciate the gospel because you've underrealized your wickedness and that for which you've been forgiven what the law does is shows us a standard that must be fulfilled and so it destroys pride. It says you have not fulfilled it. What the promise does, what grace does is bring us a savior that fulfills the law for us and so destroys despair. It's been done for you. That is the truth of the gospel. It simultaneously deals with both camps. Pride and Despair. And if your tendency is toward pride and your ability to do well with the laws in comparison to others, you need to hear again, Satan would have you prove yourself holy through your obedience to the law. But God gave it so that you would know you're a sinner. Others of you are all too aware of the weight of your sins and you, you are actually crushed and depressed by your utter inability to measure up to the standard of God. You you never met the standard of your father. You don't meet the standard of your friends, and you, you, you feel, how could I ever meet the standard of God? And, and you're crushed under that weight. You need to hear what Martin Luther would say about that. He said, even though I feel, even though I feel th- feel myself completely crushed and swallowed by sin and see God as a hostile and wrathful judge. Yet, in fact, this is not true. It is only my feeling that thinks so. The word of God, which I ought to follow in these anxieties rather than my own conscience, teaches much differently, namely that God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit and that he does not despise a broken and contrite heart. So the man or woman who repents of their sins and turns to Christ in faith can know that the burden is completely removed, that the stain is washed away, that the separation is done away with. So the law and grace, these two principles through which God works them in our mind, they meet at the cross. Right? The law and grace, the law and promise, they meet at the cross in the same way that justice and mercy kiss at the cross. In the same way that wrath and love are pictured at the cross these two principles meet at the cross. It all comes down to the cross. Now, how do you know if you understand the cross, the promise, grace, the gospel? Here's how you know you understand the cross, the promise, grace, the gospel, okay? Your sins, which are many, your sins both horrify you And cause you to confidently run to God. That's how you know you understand the cross. Your sins both horrify you and cause you to confidently run into the arms of God. You live in the freedom and the joy of forgiveness, you know the depth of that which you've been forgiven but you know you've been forgiven. Yeah. And so you live in freedom and in joy. You're conscience, conscious, excuse me, of your sin, but you're not crippled by your sin because the promise has liberated you from the curse of the law. You get the gospel. How do you know you don't quite understand the gospel? Well, you, your sins, which are many, don't trouble you all that much. Ah, it's not good, uh, but it's not the end of the world. But they do trouble you enough that you feel ashamed and avoid God. You do not understand the gospel, the cross, the promise, grace, which simultaneously tells us because of the law, we are exceedingly wicked, but because of the promise, we're fully forgiven. Our sins, when we get the gospel, should drive us joyfully to Christ. That's why repentance is a good word. That's why Peter said times of refreshing will come as Israel repents. Now, what, what hangs in the background, and here's where I end, okay? What hangs in the background of this whole conversation, the, the, the underlying tension that we've all been feeling. And what Paul has not said yet, but will say in the book of Galatians is this. Your works don't give you your salvation. Got that. It's the work of Jesus that gives you your salvation. But if you do not have any works in your Christian life, if you are in no way pursuing the righteousness that is revealed in the law, then you are not a Christian. That is a backdrop on the underlying tension of this whole conversation. That's the tension of James, where he said, Okay, you tell me you believe, the demons believe and shudder. Show me you believe by what you do, show me your faith by your works. That, that, that is a tension therein. There are two reasons that Paul will eventually say in Galatians that if if you're not pursuing the righteousness that is revealed in the law, you are not a Christian. There are two reasons why he'd say that. Number one is this. If you have been saved by grace through faith, you have been changed. Period. If you have been saved, you have been changed. You are a new creation. It's a process. I I am not where I want to be in transformation. I'm not as changed as I want to be, but I am changed. It is discernible, evidential, even measurable that there is change in my life. If you have been saved by grace through faith, you have been changed so that where once you you longed for unrighteousness, you actually long for righteousness now. You actually want to do the right thing by God. And so the law for you now, Old Testament and New Testament, all the imperatives for you have ceased to be a burden that weighs you down and condemns you, and have become for you a joyful school of righteousness. When you read the imperatives of scripture, you say, thank you. This is good because I want to do right by God. I have a new nature in me, which is predisposed to doing what is right. I have a new nature that wants to do what is right for the glory of God. If you've been saved by faith, then you've been changed. If you do not see the imperatives of the school of righteousness that are desirable and no longer burdensome, you're not a Christian. That's what Galatians will say. The second reason that it'll be able to say that is this because by definition, by definition, a Christian is someone for whom Christ is not only Savior, but also Lord. By definition, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. By definition, a Christian has made Christ both Savior and Lord. If he is your Lord, then you are his servant. And the New Testament would tell us his joyful servant and friend. And that there is now an intense desire in your life to do Right? honor Christ, to glorify Christ, to live a life that is consonant with His will and His ways. Jesus put it this way. He made it really simple for us. He said in John 14, if you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments, Jesus said. Why? Because if we have been saved, then we have experienced the love of God. Love of God for us has become very real. And what happens then is some sort of reciprocity. We love because we are loved. He first loved us. We now love him. If you have experienced the love of God, it has changed you from a rebel to a worshiper. You now love God. God said, you love me, obey my commandments. That's that's what it looks like. So then we understand that the demands of righteousness, the imperatives of scripture, are not a prior condition, but rather the appropriate response to the grace that we've experienced in Jesus. And so to fail to respond appropriately To not pursue the righteousness that we see in the law is to misunderstand grace. Understand that we have been freed from slavery to sin. We have not been freed to sin. In fact, Romans 6 would say that though we were once slaves to sin, we're now slaves to righteousness. We're enslaved to it because we love it. We want to do it. Not as much as we should, but we do we have been changed. Ephesians, in fact, would say explicitly, you haven't been saved by good works, but you've been saved for good works. So, to not respond appropriately is to misunderstand grace, and that is the situation for some of us. We're grace abusers. Grace abusers. But grace, when fully realized, actually creates loving obedience. And then for us, God's law shows us what an obedient life looks like because how else would we know? A life that is consonant with the ways and the will of God for the glory of God. But only the gospel can produce obedience from a heart full of love and gratitude. The law could not do it. It was a diagnosis without the cure. Grace is a cure and the healing and the new life. John the Apostle would say, this is the love of God. This is what it looks like to love God, that we keep his commandments. And then he says the most amazing thing, the most beautiful truth of the promise and the grace and the cross and the gospel. He says, and his commandments are not burdensome. The reason is the penalty of the law has been removed. We have been given a brand new nature that wants to do what is right. We now love and want to glorify God. And lastly, we have the power of the person of the Holy Spirit working in us. His commandments are not burdensome anymore. We want to do them. So the antinomians among us need to confess that you've been too given to lawlessness and you're a grace abuser and you fail to fully grasp the principles of law and promise, and you need to repent, and you need to cling to the fullness of the cross where justice and mercy kissed for your good. And to the legalists among us, you need to realize that all your self-assigned goodness has done nothing for you but play you into Satan's hands. And you need to repent. And you need to cling to the cross where love and wrath are perfectly pictured in the sacrifice. God, help us to grasp these things at the deepest level. This is deep water, Lord. Lord, we we pray for... People here who have never, never got this before, that this is brand new for them and they suddenly know that they're a sinner who's desperately in need of a Savior. We ask that they would repent of their sins, turn from them and turn toward you, and that as they call upon you for forgiveness according to what you did on the cross, we ask together that you'd flood them with your love, with your mercy with your compassion, with your newness, with your healing, with your grace. We pray that they would know right now in this place that they're brand new, that they're washed, that they're clean. And Lord, for those of us that are already Christians and not, not quite getting it, myself included, we ask that you would ever so wonderfully by your Holy Spirit, show us where we're grace abusers or false achievers and our own self-declared righteousness and bring us to a place of clinging to the cross and rejoicing, rejoicing. Lord, set our hearts on fire for these glorious truths. Prayer team is up here if you need anything at all.